Let's open the Word of God to Second Peter. Second Peter is in the New Testament, toward the back of the New Testament. You've got the Gospels and Acts that give you a historical backbone. Then you've got Paul's letters written under inspiration, the other letters, and the other letters include two letters written under inspiration, so they're timeless scripture, uh, for Julie Drake and for Debbie Corbin and for Brad McCoy, and we're looking at Second Peter, so turn there if you would. And this morning, uh, i got good news for you. We've been looking at holiness in chapter 1 and heresy in chapter 2, and then Chapter two of this three chapter book is a real downer, man, because I mean, we're told how bad the false teachers are going to be and all the bad stuff they're going to say and what they're going to get in the end. And uh, that's kind of good to hear, but it's kind of a downer. But now we're in chapter three. It's all about hope and hope isn't, man, I hope God's got this figured out. It's looking forward to the promises he's made to us about our certain future in Jesus Christ. And chapter three, as it talks about our hope, says don't be shocked that people are going to make fun about our faith in the second advent of Christ. It's always been that way. Uh, if they don't understand where we came from, they're certainly not going to accept where we're headed. But that's very important for Murray to know or for Jenny and Stan to know. And don't be unsure, despite the skeptics, of God's ultimate and eternal victory in Jesus Christ. And so today, as we start chapter 3, thinking about our hope, our hope, Hope is built on the person of Christ and the written word of God. And I think this introduction into this chapter about hope uh, for Ashley or for Ken or for David or for Brad is we need to be uh, active, not lazy or lax. We need to be learning and leaning on, if I can quote my good friend uh, Al Gore, the lockbox of Scripture. Scripture doesn't change. Our culture kind of changes. Uh, we've recently changed certain moral issues into civil rights issues. Uh, and that explains why people are so afraid of us. But they were afraid of us before. They, they ch- decided to change the rules. So the world's always changing the rules. God doesn't change the rules. And rather than being lazy or lax, especially now that things seem to be so out of sorts, we need to continue to learn and lean on the lot box of scripture. So before we dive into that passage, verses one and two, let's uh, pray we'll be teachable to God's word. And uh, let's pray for our uh, active military. On the lower left there, I took out my, I kind of rotated Josh Reed, my nephew, who's a sailor, out of the montage there, the collage. And I put Joe McCormick, who's now a happy civilian, but, boy, he was a good-looking soldier, wasn't he, in the lower left there? Let's pray for our active military, our peace officers, and our firefighters. And uh, Steve Bowers, uh, you know, people who are in the Marine Corps are never ex-Marines. They're just former Marines just waiting for the call. And so Steve was a deacon here and my favorite third baseman on the old Tigerwood Tiger softball team who would kindly tell me about mistakes I made in the field. Uh and I've told that story many times. I'm not going to tell it again today. I'll tell it again sometime in my retirement dinner probably. But um, Steve, I want you to pray for us for teachability, troops, firefighters, peace officers. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Um, you know, Dustin, I got my failings, but you know, I just keep coming. You know, and the last two weeks we've had 
puns with punch to try to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking. And the puns haven't been that punchy. But uh, spontaneously, as an answer to prayer, uh, last week uh, before I did my puns with punch too, Jack Smith and also uh, uh, Nicole Smith independently gave me some other puns, hoping I would actually use them. And so this is these are Jack Smith's puns with punch. If uh, you like them, give him full credit. If you don't like them, write him the nasty emails this week. <laughs> puns with punch. A hand grenade thrown into a French kitchen would result in linoleum blown apart. Not Napoleon Bonaparte, but linoleum blown apart. We can explain them when necessary. Time flies like arrows, fruit flies like bananas. Play on words. The Marine who survived both mustard gas and pepper spray attacks is now a seasoned veteran. Jack, and see, when it doesn't go over and Jack gives me the material, you know what he says? Bad delivery. <laughs> so I'm in a no-win situation here. I, I realize that. And finally, hold your applause. The bad news is cannibals in Southeast Asia recently ate a missionary. The good news is all of the cannibals involved got a taste of religion. <laughs> JackSmith at gmail.com. Uh, today after AM services, lunch meeting, free food, and you'll be briefed on our children's ministries. And they're really in a really good place as we sit here on the cusp of super summer. No pressure, Krista, <laughs> but she's already got a, a cool plan and she'll tell you about it. And then tonight we're going to do our monthly men's fellowship. Uh, I found this uh, Tim Tebow DVD series. What he says is short. It's not like 45 minutes like I'm going to do to you this morning. It's like 12 minutes, but he says some interesting things, and we can interact with it some. And we've got a game designed by James. Dale's going to give a short testimony, and uh, then we'll have an opportunity to win Brahms uh, gift cards. So it's all good. We'll be done before 8 o'clock this month. We usually meet in people's homes. Tonight we're going to be in the youth room, so come if you can. Looking at Second Peter, coming now to the third chapter of a three-chapter book. And the overall message of the book is a Christ-centered hope. Looking forward to all that we've got promised, not just in the now, but for all eternity. Should motivate believers like Carol Wanzer or Phyllis Davis or uh, Summer Love uh, to embrace a lifestyle of true holiness. Wholeness in incorporating the Lordship of Christ into our lifestyles and to avoid the false teachings, the heresies, morally and doctrinally of false teachers. Uh, Dustin, I like to think of Second Peter as a big arch. The kind of the key to the book hangs at the back door. It kind of tells you the bottom line is be diligent to be found in peace, spotless, blameless, and keep growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says that to the readers then and to Julie Demerson now. And then you got a three-story building. The bottom floor is holiness, wholeness in our submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Heresy, watch out. There's always false teachers watering down and denying the faith. And a lot of them have PhDs and national television shows. And HOPE, uh, which, let's use this acronym, 
Hope is not hoping something nice might happen, hoping some of the stuff we believe about Jesus might actually be true. It's holding a positive and optimistic perspective now based on an eager expectation of our forever future with Jesus. I mean, he came, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, predicted his resurrection, was bodily resurrected, ascended to heaven. He's got a track record. Uh, I'm going to put my faith in him over politicians, the United Nations, or whatever uh, C-SPAN is broadcasting right now. Now, quite often, I know uh, I've had several of you tell me this has been helpful. I used to say, when you feel like you're at the end of your rope, tie a knot in faith and hold on, right? Well, let's amplify that just a bit. Uh, I'm not sure what you're going through uh, right now in your life, but about 25% of you are in a crisis, and the others of you are either just coming out of a crisis or just about to go into a crisis. I know that, even though I'm not a prophet, which is a good thing, because Tanglewood Bible Fellowship is a non-profit organization, so all you're giving is fully tax-deductible. But uh, when you feel like you're at the end of the rope, and I've been there, tie a knot in faith, doubt your doubts. Stop doubting the stuff that's really true. Doubt your doubts. You know, I've got doubts. I always say doubt your doubts. If you can doubt God, start doubting your doubts. And hold on to a Christ-centered hope. And this helps me. When I feel really sorry for myself, I put whatever I'm looking at This makes me feel sorry uh, for myself against the background of the crucified Savior. I see the cross, and I'm thinking, I got nothing. I got nothing to whine about. I mean, he was crucified for me and rose again. That's good. Now, a couple weeks ago in Second Peter 2, we were taught that in times of crisis, believers in Jesus should rest in who God is and resist the temptation to see only the people and problems around us. How can you do that if you don't know what the Scripture says about who God is? You cannot live a decent Christian life if you are lax or lazy about learning and living the Scripture. Just having scriptural information is not enough, but it's a necessary component to hammering out biblical convictions you can actually live in as you see God and not just the problems. So here we are in Second Peter. Let's read the two verses we're going to look at this morning. This is now, beloved, the second letter. He wrote First Peter earlier, probably six months or a year before this. I'm now writing Second Peter. This is the second letter I'm writing to you, and that's plural in the original. That's all y'all. You know, in Oklahoma, y'all are singular. All y'all is plural. Writing to you folks, you believers, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. You know, the more I teach here and at Cameron University, uh, the more I'm convinced that um, repetition is the mother of retention. I used to repeat a lot of stuff at Cameron. And I would notice that after the, Debbie, after the second or third time you say something in a particular class, some of the cool kids kind of roll their eyes and nobody sees it but me. And I'm thinking, well, you know, they got it the second time I said it. This the third time. And so that's great. And they want more information. I mean, Ashley and Amber and Murray never did that, but, uh, but I used to think, okay, check. They've got it. They're fine. It's everybody else who needs the repetition. But about 90% of the people roll their eyes. When I'm repeating something, they'll miss it on the midterm and the final. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's like, you know, give me more stuff I'm not listening to so I can forget it. They, I don't want to listen to the same stuff again. It's it's a strange pseudo-sophistication. And occasionally you see this in Christian circles. People have such a great experiential love for God, they're not really that interested in Scripture. 
which I find to be inherently contradictory and not a good thing to promote uh, in your own personal life or in those that you influence, okay? So anyway, let's keep reading. This is the second letter he's writing under inspiration, so it's been preserved. It's in your, your Bible there. Um, that I'm writing to all y'all, and ultimately writing to us, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Not everything in this book is new. In fact, everything he's saying has been said before in Scripture. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand in the Old Testament and the New Testament by the holy prophets of the Old Testament and the commandment that's uh, collective, all the stuff Jesus said and the apostles were taught from the teachings of Jesus of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, right? Um, this is now the second letter. Uh, we're looking at, as I say, a category of biblical material, sometimes called the general epistles or general letters. You know, Paul's letters are all titled based on the people or church he wrote them to. So Murray, the book of Galatians is Paul's epistle under inspiration written to the Galatian churches, people who lived, who were ethnically Galatians back then. Colossi, people who lived in the city of Colossi are called Colossians. People who live in Duncan are called Duncanites. You know, so if he was going to write an inspired letter to Duncan, it'd be called Duncanites. But Colossians are people who lived in the city of Colossi in ancient Turkey. And that was the letter Paul wrote to, to them. The reason we, by convention, label Paul's letters by the recipients because he wrote 13 of them. So the other option, Ken, would be to have 1st Paul, 2nd Paul, 3rd Paul, 4th Paul, 12th Paul, and 13th Paul. And that's too confusing. So let's label Paul's letters by the recipients. Let's label the other letters, not written by Paul, by the human authors. So who's the human author of the book of Jude? Correct answer would be Jude. Who's the human author of the book of James? James, okay? So first and second Peter, and, and it's not one Peter and two Peter, you know. It's not one Corinthians and two Corinthians. Now you can say it if you want to. But this is the second of two letters that Peter wrote under inspiration. And I think that, you know, we're increasingly, uh, the emergent church is one example of this. It spun off evangelicalism and it says, pay no attention to the scripture. We'll tell you what it means. All you need is a paraphrase. You know, love the way we say be, to love, which has basically become a move slightly to the left of Karl Marx. And that's not Christianity. That's the problem. And I think one reason increasingly modern evangelicals go to college and lose their faith is they didn't have much of a content of faith beyond trusting Jesus, hopefully, when they left town, you know. And that's mom and dad's fault, and that's the pastor's fault, and that's a lot of people's fault, possibly. But I think one problem is people don't get in the pulpit and tell you what the Bible is anymore. If anything, they apologize for giving 45 minutes of their time to telling you what it means. And, uh, you know, some of us aren't going to do that. But I think we've failed to tell you just how exquisite this thing is. You can't stand there and look at Wrigley. He is so beautiful, man. I mean, listen, I I love kids, okay? I'm a 65-year-old person that thinks like a kid, acts like a kid. That's my wife, when I'm not being a professional Christian. Um, and I love kids. And I'll, I have an amazing uh, magnetic attraction to, to women. Um, I do. Four years and younger, 94 and over. That, those two groups, these women love me. I mean, I'm like the, I'm like the Beatles, man, around them. They love me. And the fact that I got jelly beans in the office helps. 
Now, anybody older than four and under 94, they don't get me. My wife understands me. She tries to. But the rest of it doesn't work for me. But I mean, I love kids, okay? Uh, and when you, re- and, and you look at Wrigley, and it's impossible to say, this kid is beautiful. I mean, he is so beautiful. And I like them all. I, I've not seen a single baby that's been part of this church I didn't think was beautiful. But this kid is super beautiful, okay? And I, I look at the father, and I'm thinking, how is this possible? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And I believe in miracles, but miracles are rare by definition. But it's impossible to look at that baby and say, that baby, is, and not say he's, he's special, okay? Uh, preachers need to get up here and say, this thing is, this is special, man. This isn't just another ancient history book. This is special. It's been inspired. It's been preserved. It's been canonized. And it can and should be illuminated when we, when we approach it. What does all that mean? Inspiration is why this is such a big deal. Inspiration is the fact that God, the Holy Spirit... We could debate about what the Holy Spirit's doing now in the church age. But the one thing he did foundationally for the church age was God the Holy Spirit superintended the human authors of Scripture. Who's the human author of First Peter and Second Peter? Trick question. Next question, who's buried in Grant's tomb? You know? Next question, when was the War of 1812 fought? You know? I mean, these are not trick questions. Peter's the human author. God the Holy Spirit superintended Peter as he wrote First and now Second Peter. The human authors of the scripture, such that they composed and recorded the exact message God desired as timeless, gnomic truth, word of God written kind of truth, in the words of the original manuscript. All the stuff that was inspired has been preserved, and it wasn't by Xerox machine, because the printing press wasn't invented until 1450 CE. So until then, we're copying stuff down, and you might say, well, there's no way they could copy it accurately. Well, I got news for you. Olga's going to see the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. Lord willing, next May, we're going to go to Jerusalem, amongst other places. We'll go to the Shrine of the Book, the museum in Israel, where they've got the Isaiah Scroll. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know why that's really important? Not because it tells us about this little sect, S-E-C-T-S, folks. Don't get too excited. Uh I didn't, when I say sex, I'm not talking about S-E-X here. I would never mention that from the pulpit. I never talk about sex from the pulpit. But, uh, I guess I just did. But S-E-C-T-S, Jewish, first century had four major sects. Pharisees, Sadducees, they didn't believe in life after death. That's why they're Sadducee. The Essenes and the Zealots, the Essenes lived in the Dead Sea. They had an interesting community. They're so holy they wouldn't even mix with the temple worshipers. That's how sanctimonious they were. But Debbie, what they really did to help us is they copied all of the Old Testament except for the book of Esther. Since Esther doesn't explicitly say the word God, that book wasn't holy enough for them. They kicked it out of their canon. But anyway, the treasure of the Dead Sea Scrolls is called the Isaiah Scroll. Carbon dated 150 B.C. All 66 chapters. And in the arid environment of the Dead Sea area, it looks like it's brand new. They couldn't believe it. All 66 chapters. And so now we could compare 150 B.C. copy to the earliest copy we had prior to that, 150 B.C. copy to the earliest copy we had before that, which was 1000 A.D. And we thought, wow, we'll be able to see what the copying process looks like. It's exactly the same. Like three proper names were slightly misspelled. and It didn't matter because it's a variation anyway. It's unbelievable. So why is that important? Because Isaiah 53 may be the most important prophecy about Jesus in the entire Old Testament. I mean, it, sounds, it reads like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And before we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, the liberals said, well, yeah, that sounds a lot like Jesus, but he couldn't be that accurate about predicting Jesus. So obviously the Christians must have changed the wording of Isaiah 53. There's no way. We've got the Isaiah scroll, 150 B.C., 150 years before Jesus. is exactly the text we've been reading all these years. So that's incredible. As far as the New Testament is concerned, we have a portion of the Gospel of John Carmen dated uh, somewhere between 100 and 125 A.D. It's called the John Rylance Papyrus, the, the best number I've seen. I think it's the most accurate. It's 115. So that gospel, which may have been one of the last books written in the New Testament, was widely distributed already by 115 as being distributed and read by the early church. So the reason the Bible is so important, because it's the word of God written, it's been inspired, it's been preserved. And this preservation is a class two kind of miracle. It's not a class A kind of miracle like inspiration. But when you look at the New Testament attestation, as far as copies of either manuscripts or versions and you compare that to anything else in the ancient world, Dustin, your New Testament is much more on a factor of a thousand, roughly, or a hundred at least, uh, more attested than anything else in the ancient world. And when I was in high school, we took uh, we took Latin because we were told if you want to become a scientist and get a biology degree like I did, you've got to take Latin. So we took Latin, and we in second year Latin, we translated the Gallic Wars. Julius Caesar's bragging about defeating the uh, folks in France. And nobody doubts that 98% of what's in the Gallic Wars that we've got is essentially what Julius Caesar wrote. But look, he wrote it in roughly 44 B.C., right before he died. The earliest copy we've got is dated a 1,000 years later. We've only got 10 copies after that point, And nobody doubts as we're originally corrected, correctly copied. New Testament, written from 50 to about 100. John Ryland's, I'm going to date it 115, they've got it 125. Not a very long date before you start getting citations and manuscript copies in portion or in whole. And we've got 24,000, over 5,500 Greek manuscripts, that's the original language, plus versions, plus other translations. It's unbelievable. So we've got all this stuff. We've got an inspired text that's been preserved, that's been recognized as Scripture, and people have died for this, been translated into English, so you got no excuse. There's lots of good English translations. And now, what's illumination? That's where the Holy Spirit, who inspires the text, opens your eyes to see and believe the truth of the text. So it goes from intellectual knowledge in your mind to your will, where you hammer out your personal convictions. Now, here's the, here's the, here's the challenge for Savannah and Andrew and for all Christian parents. You can raise your kids in a Christian home, and for a while, they're going to implicitly have faith in your faith. That's not their faith. They have faith in your faith. If Angel, you know, were to tell the, tell the girls that they were to say, uh, uh, in what country do pandas come, wh- where do pandas come from? What country do pandas come from? And Angel would say China. But if she just tried to, wanted to be funny and say Canada, they would believe that. They have faith in whatever she tells them. You know, little kids have faith in their parents' faith for a while. The big thing you want to see happen in that Christian home is not force them to do anything, but challenge them to at some point, sometimes it happens early, late, sometimes it's after they leave, to transfer faith in your faith, Dustin, to faith in their own hearts, so that they actually believe, that Clay actually believes this stuff mom and dad believes. 
you know. Now, some of us didn't get a lot of Christian input growing up, so we kind of had to do that on our own. In some ways, it may be easier. <laughs> That's the problem, because it's easy for kids to kind of go on automatic pilot, especially when mom and dad are around or Pastor Brad's around or the youth minister's around, James is around or whatever, and go through the motions. However, having said all that, I have seen a lot of great Christian parents that have had kids grow up in, the, in a church like this one where I think they get a lot of good input. But again, it's got to happen at home or it's not going to make a whole lot of difference. It's not James's responsibility to rear your kids. It's your responsibility to rear your teenagers, right? But you know, I've seen great parents end up with kids that either never come to faith or get so far away it's hard to tell they were ever believers at all. And then we've got some kids in our youth group that come from incredibly we got some of these adults, some of you guys come from very dysfunctional families, but by God's sovereign grace, you came to faith and you didn't get all the benefits of having a, uh, I would have loved for my dad to take me to church. He didn't want to come to church, you know, he's not interested in church when I was growing up. Uh, and yet uh, he changed later, you know, so it's all good. So, I mean, I think we don't, maybe preachers, we go to seminary, we take whole semesters. James took a whole semester on Bibliology. You know, you study about all this cool stuff about Scripture. Uh, I At Dallas Seminary, we probably had three semesters on this stuff. I mean, it's just great. We loved it. But sometimes we assume you already know this or you're not going to want to hear it. But we just don't appreciate what we've got. And, you know, I see people who are really smart, very skeptical about Scripture, and they make sarcastic, blasphemous statements about Scripture. And it doesn't make me mad as much as just sad. Because they don't understand it. They totally misunderstand it. Well, the Bible says, you know, the earth's the center of the universe. No, it doesn't. What well, says sunrise and sunset? That's phenomenological language. That's them describing what it looks like. That's all it means. That's not astronomy. That's just telling them what it means. You can watch uh, on satellite TV uh, the most advanced scientific weather forecast that you can get anywhere in the world using Doppler radar and all the computers. And after they say, you know, there's a 25% chance of rain tomorrow, they'll say, sunrise tomorrow will be at 6.52 a.m. That's phenomenological language. You just describe the way it looks. It's not making a scientific statement there. When Jesus says, I am the door, he doesn't mean he's a piece of wood or metal on hinges. He means he's the way to heaven. You know, if you just interpret the Bible in context, it makes perfect sense. And the people who make fun of it, typically, uh, all these... 99% of the Bible contradictions, except for the inscription over the cross, uh, which lines up very nicely if you look at it, are just somebody misinterpreting one verse or another verse and then trying to correlate them. If you interpret both in context, they always fit. Sometimes you've got to look at the x-ray. That's why you take Greek and Hebrew. If you're going to be a medical doctor, you need to be able to read an x-ray, and I think ministers need to be able to look at that and figure stuff like that out. So anyway, he's saying, look, this is the second letter I'm writing and you need to read it and take it to heart because it really is the Scripture and it's really important. In addition to the uh, preservation of Scripture, here's my here's my real trump card on the importance of Scripture. It's not just inspiration and that's indispensable. It's not just preservation and that's critical. It's not just canonization and that's important. It's not just illumination and that's essential. It's the commendation of Scripture by Jesus. We have people... Bruce McLaren, who will tell you for 45 minutes in his messages, if he goes that long, and he apologizes when he does, how much he loves Jesus while he's denigrating the scriptures. And I'm thinking, how in the world can you love Jesus 
and denigrate the scriptures when Jesus says stuff like, in John 10, hey, scripture says this and the scripture can't be broken, over and out. Uh, on the road to Emmaus a couple weeks ago on Easter, Jesus explained to the guys who didn't understand what was going on, everything about him in all of the Old Testament scriptures, like he didn't just say, hey, really believe me because I say it. He said, look, Isaiah 53 says this. Psalm 22 says this. Zechariah 12 says this. He's walking. Genesis 3.15 says this. He's walking through the scriptures. That's what, that's, can I use this? Jesus trumps their doubts with scripture. Can you believe it? And then when he's tempted early in the ministry, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he quotes from Deuteronomy every time he says that. From Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says it. That's why I put Deuteronomy as our call to worship. Anybody notice that? Kind of an odd call to worship in the middle of a uh, Second Peter study. But we're going to dedicate uh, Wrigley. Well, I'm glad you didn't name him Fenway because you know that wouldn't have been the same. He's a Yankees fan. He was going to name him Yankee Stadium, but Mom said, "Nope, we're not calling him Yankee Stadium. You're going to have to come up with a different stadium." So, in honor of the Cubs winning the World Series a couple years ago, where he's Wrigley, and I love that name by the way. Ex baseball player, frustrated pitcher. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, you know, and nowadays, you know, if you're talking to a theologian, talk about inspiration, preservation, canonization, illumination, if you're talking to the average person, just say, do you realize how important Scripture was to Jesus Christ? You love Jesus and don't love the Scripture? You're going to denigrate that? You don't think your kid should be in the Scripture? And you love Jesus? How is that possible? One plus one equals 12 in your world? What's wrong? Okay. No extra charge for this. Uh, the New Testament in the New Testament. In 2 Peter 3, he refers to 1 Peter. In 2 Peter 3.16, look at this one. He says, uh, don't freak out because some of the stuff Paul says is hard. Because in all of his letters, he talks about things about salvation in which there are some things hard to understand. So it won't be easy to, to understand it all. Which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures. This is Peter in 65 AD referring to Paul's letters long before these church councils that confirm what the church already knew. All this stuff was scripture. He's calling Paul's stuff scripture right there, Dustin. That's strong, man. Jude refers to and cites parts of Second Peter. One that nobody mentions, I love this, in part because it talks about paying preachers. Not that I have any interest in that. But First Peter five. Look at First Peter five. Or not First Peter. First Timothy. Not what I say. What I mean. Okay. First Timothy five eighteen. Yeah. Occasionally, I'll bump into somebody and say, you know, there's nothing about church buildings in the in the New Testament. We're just going to meet in our home. We're just going to watch. You know, Charles Stanley, a lot better preacher than you, Pastor Brad. Yeah, he is a lot better than I am. I noticed that. Of course, I work on Sunday, so I have to tape him, you know. So uh, you can just tape him if you want to watch him, you know. Go to a real preacher. They'll, they'll come to your hospital room when you need him, you know. And these guys on the screen, I'm not crazy about either, but that's just me. Uh, but I'm old, you know, so don't listen too much to that. But anyway, yeah, I mean, sometimes people say, we don't believe in church other than just home church, and uh, paying preachers is out. Well, you know what? The Levites and the priests were paid out the tithe. But 1 Corinthians 9, Galatians 6, 1 Timothy 5 talk about paying people like me and James. Uh, and in the context of that, uh, you're with me, 1 Timothy 5. This is a mind blower. Because 1 Timothy is written in about 62, 63 AD. The Gospel of Luke would have been written two or three years before this. Now how in the heck would Paul, the apostle, fill us think about this? 
How would Paul the Apostle have access to the Gospel of Luke? Did, did Luke ever hang with Paul? Yeah, they were buddies. Luke had completed the Gospel of Luke before he wrote Acts. He writes Acts starting in 61. So uh, Luke's done with the, his Gospel before 60, maybe 59, 60. This is 62, 63, and he says, Hey, let the elders, you know, the teaching elders like James and uh, Brad be considered uh, worthy of double honor, especially if they work hard at preaching and teaching the Scripture. If we're not working hard preaching, teaching the Scripture, we're not, maybe you should cut us 50%. But I work so hard on it, I think I should get a double. Uh, that's just me, but uh, but I only get one. But. And, and James, give him like 75% increase, because he does a good job too. For the Scripture says, and this is important, Homer, because he's saying pastors should be paid, and his church is very generous to me. I'm not asking for a pay raise. For the Scripture says, and then he quotes Deuteronomy, you shall not muzzle the ox while threshing, and... He quotes another scripture, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Where do you find that scripture? Jesus says that in Luke 10, 7. That's the only place you'll find it in the Bible. Danny, in 62 AD, Paul is citing a scripture. Deuteronomy, the most holy book in the Old Testament in the Jewish mind, along with the gospel of Luke, and the ink still wet on the original manuscript. It's unbelievable, and nobody mentions it, probably because it's says nice things about preachers, so nobody wants to see it, right? Uh, if you'll notice, go back to Second Peter. I'm kidding about that, of course. Just a little bit, not a lot. Go back to Second Peter 3. This is now, beloved, the second letter, First Peter. Now we're Second Peter, writing to you. I want you to remember some things, uh, repetitions of mother retention, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. Those are the, that's the Old Testament. And now by the apostles. What's the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament? Caitlin? Bible's a big book. 66 individual books. But the first 39 books are written before the coming of Jesus. They anticipate his coming. That's the Old Testament prophets. Right? All humans are sinners and they die. That's the premise of the Old Testament. I know about Enoch. Uh, and I know about Elijah. Those are the two exceptions. But 99.9999% is what we're talking about. What's the promise of the Old Testament? God's going to send a Savior, the Messiah, Jesus, take care of the sin problem, and eventually end history on God's terms. That's the Old Testament. That's what he's talking about in verse 2, the Old Testament prophets. What's the New Testament all about? Jesus of Nazareth is the one the Old Testament said was going to come. He came first as a lamb. He's going to come again as a lion. Look busy. He's coming back. And more importantly, uh, be encouraged. Have a heavenly hope because all this stuff is going to pan out in the end. You know, the core of the biblical message is the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The core message of scripture is the gospel. It's defined in 1 Corinthians 15. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you about the gospel. You know, the very first thing I preached in Corinth, first time I got there, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. He was buried and he raised, was raised on the third day according to scripture. That's the gospel. The Bible says all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And we're also told that by the works of the law, nobody can be saved in God's sight. Okay, So we're guilty. We have an inability to save ourselves. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. He who knew no sin, Jesus lived a perfect life. He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us because we needed one that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. 
And through faith alone in Christ alone, the best person who needs to be saved because God doesn't grant him a curve can be given the gift of eternal life. And the worst person can be saved through faith alone in Christ alone. But to the one who does not work, Romans 4, 5 says, but who believes in Christ who justifies the ungodly, and we all qualify, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. See, it's all about the fact that Jesus Christ is the exclusive issue and the exclusive issuer of eternal life to all who trust him for it. He says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. That's your hope if you're a Christian. If you're not a believer in Christ, you don't have that hope. If you think you're going to impress God by your good deeds, then Christ died needlessly, and that's the ultimate blasphemy. Not good. You don't want to do that. You don't want to die without Jesus. That's our invitation. The fact we're not going to have you sign a card or walk the aisle doesn't mean this is critically important. But we dare to believe that God is more interested in your salvation than even I am and that he can convict you, open your heart to see and believe, and we're praying that will happen. Okay, take this to heart. Don't be lazy or lax. I'm using those as overlapping categories, but instead dedicate yourself, if you're a believer, or rededicate yourself to learning and leaning on the lockbox of Scripture. Uh, don't be lazy in... I don't want to think deeply about the truly important here on the Lord's Day. I'd rather specialize on the superficial and get home and read People magazine. There are some Christians that, you know, at a pragmatic level, that's the way they live their lives. And then when a big crisis hit, they want Homer or Dale or Brad or James to fix the problem. And it's, it's almost as bad as the people who sow their wild oats for years and then they come to me, they want me to pray for a crop failure. <laughs> It doesn't work, you know. Uh, but I've seen that. Don't be lax in, and this is uh, the most dangerous person in the world is a college freshman who's just finished taking his first philosophy course because <laughs> he doesn't know what he doesn't know yet. And certainly the professor is not going to let you know. He doesn't know a lot of stuff either. But some people, even in his Christian evangelical circles, think I'm way too sophisticated to take this scripture very seriously or into any detail. You gotta discipline yourself to reject that kind of garbage, cause that ain't gonna work, man. Um, let me show you some stuff from a very interesting source. Uh, a couple years ago we went from the art of public speaking to a new textbook at Cameron called Communication Mosaics. And Dustin, that's what you had to suffer under, uh, last semester. And actually it's, it's, uh, I'm kinda getting used to the textbook, so it's, it's okay. But I'm going to cite a couple of things about the way that our, the way we receive information, most of our information now is dumbing us down. And that may explain why Christians were tempted to be lazy and lax. But I mean, it's one thing for the world to do this, but we should know better. But, uh, it's so funny because the first semester we had this textbook. One of the staff members who was going to give me an extra copy of the text, physical textbook that they sent to me from the main office in Lawton, she said, hey, Dr. McCoy, I've got your communication mosaics for you. And it's communication mosaics. And I thought that was pretty, I didn't tell her she was wrong, but I thought it was kind of interesting. But yeah, this is directly from the textbook, so you realize I'm not making it up. Uh, talking about digital media, getting all our stuff from a tablet or a phone or from computers. Watch this. I think some of those older people had figured this out intuitively, but if you grow up and you know nothing different, you might not realize that 
kind of they're, it's dumbing you down. It's making it impossible for you to think profoundly about significant things. Uh, we're going to entertain ourselves to death here as a culture, and we're rapidly doing it. Uh, there are many ways in which digital media are not so beneficial to our thinking. One concern is that the high visual stimulation of digital media, parenthesis, bright colors, cool avatars, flashy images, teaches us, teaches your little girls uh, to respond, I'd say, only to dazzling stimuli and to be less attentive to more subtle phenomenon. Like when you sit them down and say, don't cross the street unless daddy's there, you're going to need to have explosions and car chases for them to understand that now, right? If that's the case, we'll miss content that does not have immediate vibrancy. Like, you know, a 65-year-old guy trying to pretend to be a preacher up here. Preliminary, preliminary, you know, and by the way, elderly is a term I do not use in my life. <laughs> and old is somebody who's at least 25 years older than I am. So that's just it, just so you know. <laughs> preliminary research also indicates that we may be more likely, watch this, Blanche, I bet you figured this out on your own. Preliminary research also indicates we may be more likely to forget information we read online or on a tablet or on a phone than information we read in hard copy books. Now, I've got no problem with you carrying your Bible around your phone and using your phone as a Bible. I mean, I do it myself in a pinch. But for me, I found out a long time ago, I think my third year of college, that if I something's important for me uh, and I can't write on, on a book, I'll make a Xerox copy. And for me, reading is reading and marking stuff up. I, I cannot process information. And if you try to do that on your computer screen, the problem is if you're writing with a sharp yellow computer screen, after a while you can't see anything else. You know, it's just you can't really mark up your computer screen. So that's the that's the data. We're going to forget stuff we read online a lot more readily than our old paper Bible. And if you want to, use, don't want to use paper Bible, that's okay. I'm not going to fight that. I can't fight technology. Just be aware that you're you may not be as effective as you could be. She goes on. Uh, relying on digital media for entertainment may undermine imaginative thought, imaginative thought and sustain mental focus. Imagination is ripe to develop at about uh, at about the age children begin to talk. And you know, right now, Savannah and Andrew yearn for Wrigley to talk to them. And then once they start talking, after a couple of months, you yearn for them to stop talking, and they never stop. You know. But today it's not unusual for two-year-olds to play with smartphones and tablets, and we did, they're just drawn to it like a magnet, aren't they? It's incredible. Uh, and they know how to download apps at that age. Uh, I don't doubt that. I mean, uh, Eloise, she's, she's better with a phone than I am, and she's three years old. Uh, children build their imaginative power by creating make-believe situations and invisible playmates. Many online apps don't encourage children to invent a character's personalities or create the rules for what characters can and cannot do. In short, children are required to use less imagination to participate in high-tech play than in old-fashioned make-believe activities. And the one-click gratification of digital media discourages the development of patience. You know, and that, that's a problem with people who weren't reared with digital media, too. Trust me. Now watch this. There's always a middle ground. You know what? Digital media is not evil, it's neutral. Are, hammer, are hammers evil? Hammers are neutral. You can use a hammer to build a house, you can use a fair house, you can use it to hit a lady over the head and steal her purse. It's neutral. All this stuff is neutral, but listen, write this down. All things in moderation, Katie, including moderation. Okay? 
Now watch this. Let's go, let's go back to the balance before we quit. Does this mean we should forswear? That's a word you don't see in secular textbooks very often. Uh, all digital media. Does it mean that parents should take away video games and the internet and tell their children to go outside and play? I think a little bit of both. Uh, my policy was, and when I grew up, when video games were just coming up and I was a young father, a lot of the spiritual people didn't let their kids get anywhere near video game. And to me, especially when they were young teenagers, I wanted them to have steady video game. I wanted to be in my house. I wanted to be providing all the food and all the drinks and wanted to have them all in one place where I could watch them. So I wasn't about to send them to somebody else's house and get, let them decide what they're drinking. Now they're going to have it, they're going to have it in my house, you know, but they're going to have to earn the right. Mow the yard, which is something I never made them do because I actually enjoyed it. But do X, and then you get two or three hours of that. And so, you you know, you've got all the chips in negotiating, even with a 13-year-old, even with a 16-year-old. You can take away the keys to the car. You can take away their insurance, man. Uh, this idea that you got to capitulate when they get to be, when they put, dig their heels in. And, and listen, when they're little than you are, and they'll never get bigger than you. I know that. This is the guy who lifts the, he, he lifts the weight machine at the Simmons Center. You've seen it, right? He didn't lift the weights. He lifts the waste machine. He hates that joke. And I, the number one rule is don't get Dustin mad at me. So, so you'll know. But, uh, you need, you need to, have the girls got him wrapped around their finger? Yeah. See, it's a problem. You know, I never had girls, but I got, uh, granddaughters now. But watch this. So should parents just punt away, uh, digital media? And a lot of Christian preachers who get on this tack will end up with that conclusion. I'm not there at all. All things in moderation. Uh, the wisest conclusion, this is the textbook's opinion, but I think she's right, is probably what Diana advises in her commentary to encourage activities that allow children to derive the benefits of both technology and old-fashioned play so they learn to operate within preset virtual worlds and to think beyond pre-structured game and contents. Now, wouldn't it be nice if we knew what say Diana said? Wouldn't it be nice? Well, unfortunately, I forgot that slide. No, I didn't forget it. Here it is. And this is D- Diana's testimony. When I was a kid, I played all the time without any fancy toys, much less high-tech ones. Not because her parents were poor, because they hadn't been invented yet. So don't feel sorry for her. Uh, once we got a new refrigerator, my sister and I took the box it came in. We've all seen that with little kids. Uh, not as much now as used to, I guess. Boom. No extra charge for that. Uh, we thought the box was the greatest thing ever. One day, it was a house, this refrigerator box. Another day, it was a spaceship. Another day, a pirate ship. Last summer, she is an adult now, got a new stove, and I offered the box to my five-year-old son. He said, what do you want me to do with this? I think he's clueless. He's like, what do you want me to do with this? What's that? It's a box. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, i got to set a new record on this thing. Church? I don't have time for church. I'm in the middle of a game, you know? Okay, Johnny, we'll see you after church, you know. Hey, you're feeding them. You're providing room and board. You got all the, all the chips, man. Forget about giving up to that, you know. You're wiser than they are. You're, you're smarter than Wrigley, okay? You're gonna have to teach them the way it is, right? Just get ready for this battle. It's coming, you know. Um, what do you want me to do with that box, mom? What a, what a square, you know. The box is not square, you know. Pi aren't, pi aren't square, pi aren't round, but that's a whole different thing. Uh, but I see him doing things on his Game Boy, that are more sophisticated than things I did at his age. Some of my friends are huge fans of technology for kids. Some are absolutely against it. You'll see that in the Christian circles too. I'm more of a middle way person. That's kind of where I am. It's usually, the truth is in the middle. My son benefits from technology, but he also needs to learn that a big box can be anything in the world. 
Hey, don't be lax or lazy. Learn. Lean on Scripture. Do this at home. Realize discipling your children isn't James's problem, isn't the Birch's problem, isn't Stephanie's problem with the toddlers, isn't the Skinner's with the junior church, isn't Krista's super summer. All that's good stuff. I'm so glad we've got it. I'm so proud of those people for doing it. But don't put the responsibility. you got to live the Christian life at home and teach the Scripture principles at home or they're probably not going to get it. And even if you do that, they may not get it. Number two, there's an occupational hazard for people like Blanche and Olga and James and me. Uh, we can't separate our teaching ministry from our personal walk with the Lord. And I hear more and more, you know, if you're not getting any devotional stuff from your study to prepare to teach the people, well, then what are you doing? I mean, that's insane to me. I think you need more than just that, but I think you definitely need that. And I know Blanche uh, and Olga and James and Brad know that you can kind of do that. Well, this is my job. I got to teach that tomorrow morning, so I got to get this stuff and never really apply it to yourself. And then well, I've got devotional study that's separate. You got to you got to really make this for real, you know. Otherwise, you're going to burn out. And then a warning to all TBFers: Look, there are thousands who haven't bowed the knee to Baal, but TBF's a pretty word saturated, information saturated environment in a culture that's rapidly rejecting that, so they can play video games all day long. Uh, but there's a real danger there because you can sit soaking sour in a place like this and become more like the Pharisees. Uh, than uh, like the Christ. So beware, okay? So let's not be lazy or lax. Let's not uh, fail to appreciate what we've got in Scripture. Let's appreciate it, live it out, not be surprised when people laugh at us for actually believing this stuff. But uh, let's realize the battle starts with Christ and the word of Christ in Scripture. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. You've spoken in the word. You haven't stuttered. And the living word, Jesus Christ, confirms that the written word can't be broken, it's indispensable, and help us in a culture that minimizes that, minimizes the reality of objective truth, much less uh, propositional revelation of truth in Scripture. Help us to realize that's all fake news, that's all uh, misinformation, and you've spoken to us and you want us to understand and apply your Scripture and help us to start with that as one of our key priorities as we abide in Christ in the Christian life. And again, we pray for uh, anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart seen and believed in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Open their eyes to see their sin, they got it. Uh, righteousness, they can't crank it out. Judgment is coming. But in Christ, all that they need has been fulfilled and performed for them. He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us. And we thank you for this time, and especially this morning, this very special morning as we've seen uh, Wrigley dedicated, and we celebrate with the parents and the extended family what a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful gift of your grace this little boy is, and we continue to pray for uh, the uh, physical and the mental and the financial and spiritual health of the, of the entire extended family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.